we generally think that people get healthier as they lose weight. But a new study in JAMA Network Open found that older adults might increase their risk of death if they lose weight. The researchers studied 17,000 adults older than 70 in Australia and 2,000 in the U.S. and found that even just a 5% decrease in body weight is associated with a greater risk of death. Weight gain, by contrast, had no effect. The study noted that weight loss could be indicative of underlying conditions such as cancer or dementia and didn't differentiate between adults who intended to lose weight and those whose weight loss was unintended. This is Pulse Check. I'm Megan Messerly. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a report on Tuesday underscoring the pandemic's impact on the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. Syphilis infections increased 32% in 2021 to 176,000, the highest total in decades, and congenital syphilis cases have increased more than 200% over the last five years. The news follows a U.S. district court ruling that tossed out an Obamacare requirement that insurance companies cover the HIV prevention drug PrEP and other preventative services, including syphilis tests, at no cost. The EPA is trying to cut emissions of a cancer-causing gas used at facilities that sterilize medical equipment. In a proposed rule announced Tuesday, the agency said that it will cut ethylene oxide emissions by 80% across 86 facilities. The gas is colorless as well as odorless at low concentrations and can cause cancer in people who are chronically exposed to it, raising concerns for communities close to sterilization facilities. And with nearly 200 bills introduced this year, state lawmakers have proposed a range of changes to who is allowed to provide certain types of care. Daniel Payne explains how measures could impact the way healthcare providers can practice. Hey, Megan, thanks for having me. What do some of these bills do? So it really depends on the state, but largely they are either trying to expand what healthcare providers are allowed to do, or they're trying to cut back on what healthcare providers have been allowed to do through the pandemic. But it really depends on who we're talking about, whether it's about what pharmacists are allowed to prescribe on the spot or what kind of care they can give or what nurse practitioners are allowed to do without physician supervision. It really depends state to state, but it's about what kind of care and how much care a provider is allowed to give in a certain location. One of the really interesting things that, that I've been following, which you mentioned in your story, is some of these changes to access to, you know, hormonal contraception. You know, we've seen this debate play out in the States for some time. And the argument against that, you know, historically has been doctors don't want pharmacists just dispensing this. Doctors say it's a good incentive for people to come in for their preventative care visits. So if, you know, you're dispensing birth control at the pharmacy, you're missing out on that chance to, you know, intervene on the preventative care side for other services. Is what other types of policies have we seen be introduced specifically? That's a really good question. And, and that's a great example because it really gets to the heart of this issue between safety and access. And like you're saying, if you talk to doctors, they will say, if we expand these practice authorities at the state level and through state law, it's not safe for patients that they need to be coming in. They need to be seeing a physician with a lot of training, with a lot of experience. But other providers will say, this is about access. This is about people being able to get the care that they can get. And a lot of people wouldn't get any care at all if they can't get it more easily in more locations with fewer wait times. So that really gets to the crux of the issue. And it's also important to note that there's a lot of money at stake here. All these providers are trying to fight for a limited amount of reimbursements. And depending on who is allowed to do what can really depend on how much of those reimbursements each group can get. 
You mentioned this idea of some of the flexibilities that were created, you know, during the pandemic to just help with some of the workforce shortages we were seeing. How has the pandemic changed some of these conversations around scope of practice? Of course, this has been a debate for decades, but the pandemic really added fuel to the fire on all sides. A lot of providers like pharmacists and nurse practitioners and physician assistants said, look at all these flexibilities we had through the pandemic and we didn't have any problems. We've proven that we have the education and the training to do these things. You should just let us keep doing these things. So there's a big push now to make some of those flexibilities permanent. In fact, one of the largest pharmacist associations in the country, that's one of their top priorities across states this year is to make those temporary flexibilities permanent. And there's also this issue of workforce shortages across healthcare. You know, this is being discussed a lot at state and federal level. And one response that a lot of provider groups are bringing up is more providers being allowed to do more things will ease bottlenecks across the workforce. Of course, physician groups would say to both of those arguments that the system has been working the way it's been working for a reason. And now that we're sort of exiting this emergency stage of the pandemic, we should go back to the way things were and really think about licensing as we have always been thinking about it. I know, you know, talking to doctors myself, you know, they acknowledge these workforce shortages that we're seeing, you know, especially in the wake of the pandemic. And, you know, we've talked about how doctors have been, you know, historically reticent to allow other providers to take on some of their responsibilities. Have we seen any softening from doctors on their approach to this issue in light of these intense workforce shortages? I don't think so. I think that the debate that has been ongoing for decades, even though it is really complex and it's a patchwork of policy that there's a lot of nuance here, generally, though, has just intensified each side of the debate. There's a lot more attention on how we deal with workforce shortages. There's a lot more attention now on the health workforce in general and how they're treated and what they're allowed to do. And the pandemic has offered this open question of, should we go back to the way things were in 2019? Or how much of these policies should we keep around? And you're seeing that across all types of healthcare, from telehealth to these sorts of provider authorities. You talked about sort of the financial stakes here for providers, but what does all of this mean for patients? It depends on who you ask. If you ask physicians, they will say that this is a moment when patients could be seeing healthcare workers who have less training, less supervision, and essentially will get lower quality care. That's their charge, should some of these bills become law. Other providers would say this is a way to allow patients more access to get care faster, to get care in more convenient locations, and to get the same exact quality of care, oftentimes for less money from the system. One thing's for sure, though, it's a big moment for patient care in general, because this touches all sorts of specialties, all types of care, care at just about every level and just about every level of provider as well. And even though these bills one by one are sort of often overlooked or not getting a ton of attention because they are so specific, you know, about whether an optometrist or ophthalmologist is the one who's giving local anesthetic before a small surgery, taken in an aggregate, this is a really big deal across the country. This is such a fascinating issue, and I know one you will be keeping a close eye on moving forward. But thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through this today, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, Megan. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. 
Afra Abdullah and Annie Reese are our producers. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Amund is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Megan Messerly. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.